Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. In September 1941, a group of isolationist senators held hearings to criticize what they considered to be a push towards war from Jewish Hollywood producers. Chris Yogerts joins me to discuss his book, Hollywood Hates Hitler, Jew Baiting, Anti-Nazism, and the Senate Investigation into Warmongering in Motion Pictures. The book was published in 2020 by the University Press of Mississippi. In addition to reviewing the actual hearings, we also talk about the America First movement during this period, where men like Charles Lindbergh fought against U.S. involvement in the European War. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Yogerst. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about your book, Hollywood Hates Hitler, Jew Baiting, Anti-Nazism and the Senate Investigation into Warmongering in Motion Pictures. That's a long title. <laughs> but it is. It was a difficult book to title, for sure. <laughs> but it actually does what it means because it literally tells the entire story what the book's about. We don't even need to talk. People just don't know. No, I'm kidding. There you go. <laughs> um, that was easy. So one of the things you even mentioned in the introduction, but I think it's worth mentioning also here, is the concept of xenophobia. And while we are obviously in a particular time period where xenophobia in certain aspects seems to be rampant, um, it's nothing new. Obviously, we can talk about immigration for over the years and going back as many years as when people from other countries first started coming over here, even before there was a a country. But I think there's no question that these days uh, there's enough of a comparison that it's worth discussing uh, as part of how your book talks about that aspect of pre-World War II. Um, we can even talk about things like, even as examples, Philip Roth's Plot Against America and the HBO miniseries. People who don't necessarily know who these characters are, that the people we're going to be talking about, maybe they're starting to hear a little bit more about some of them in in this uh your book definitely will help uh, give it better context yeah definitely i mean there's i'm glad you mentioned a plot against america because that's a, a really great series and i was pleasantly surprised when i was watching it that a lot of the people that are involved in this investigation or a few of them anyway are mentioned kind of uh, as asides um certain senators and things like that that are are, are mentioned which made me believe that the, the people who put together that show really did their research, that even these side comments that characters are making, they're using all, so much real history. And a big part of that, I mean, it, it's it's interesting how watching that series after the, researching this book, that the more I learned about Lindbergh, the more I realized how plausible that series and book uh, actually was. Like, it's very similar to... Uh, Uh, Something like Man in the High Castle, you know, where you have this, you know, a couple little things in history could have shifted and all of a sudden we could be looking at a very different reality. 
And the 1930s was, you mentioned the xenophobia. I mean, there's the, the polarization and xenophobia in the 30s that is so much like today. And one of the things that drew me to this project was researching Hollywood in the 30s and seeing how different it was than I had thought it might have been. Uh, we hear, you know, I grew up, my grandparents, part of the greatest generation, my grandparents in World War II, and you hear about all of this, you know, the country coming together and you have all of these stories. Um, but, before, you know, literally leading up to Pearl Harbor, that was not the case. There was so much polarization. There was so much xenophobia. And uh, this investigation, even though it's largely been overshadowed by history, uh, is a perfect culmination of all of these emotions and fears that were going on uh, after the Depression and leading up to World War II. And of course, as we'll talk about, the investigation itself took place the hearings took place in September of 1941, so we're literally only a few months away from Pearl Harbor. And you sort of wonder, had Pearl Harbor not happened in December, could there have been major changes? Uh, obviously, Roosevelt had just been reelected, so that wasn't right. going to change at least immediately, but hopefully. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. there's no question that uh, the time period, it you know, you, you as you say, things happen and slight differences and things could have been completely the other way. Obviously, had, uh, you know, England not been able to withstand Germany's uh, work against them in, in, you know, after, after uh, Dunkirk, there was another situation that could have changed things. So now your background, you actually are teaching at the University of, of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Um, you also, and of course, your 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 main topic or your main interest is communications, but arts and humanities. Uh, and then, of course, this is not your first Hollywood book. Your first book was about Warner Brothers, um, from the headlines to Hollywood, the birth and boom of Warner Brothers. What? Where did that book come from? That that book I actually built out of my dissertation. Uh, yeah, that's my dis- pretty normal, <laughs> right? But right, that's pretty good. standard. Um, I wanted to, you know, one of the things it was one of these deals where I. I loved researching Warner Brothers and reading about Warner Brothers. And I, <clears throat> you always hear this, like Warner Brothers ripped from the headlines, but no one's ever really taken a deep dive into like how they did that for a lengthy period of time. So I started that with my dissertation and expanded it into the book. And actually how I came to the Hollywood Hates Hitler book was part of my first book research. I came across Harry Warner's testimony uh, in the investigation and I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was a perfect, uh, it's just, it's, it's perfect Harry Warner. And it kind of sat for a little while. And I, I ended up, I was re, I was trying to do more Warner Brothers research. And I stumbled upon the, a folder at the Cal, Cal State Northridge at their archive. And I, I stumbled upon a folder of the press coverage of the investigation. And when I looked at how widespread and and how far syndicated across the country the columns were about this investigation, I started to wonder if there was a book here, if this was something that was a bigger deal than I might have thought it was. And um, again, this, and this is why I talk about in the, in my last chapter, I'll, well, you know, why this might have been overshadowed by history, but it's also kind of obvious, you know, Pearl Harbor happens, World War II happens, and everything changes. Um, but a big part of my my interest is Warner Brothers, and uh, and I'm actually still researching Warner Brothers stuff for another book. Uh, but that's really what got me to uh, 
this book was Harry Warner's testimony as well as Warner Brothers anti-Nazi movies. One of the people you mentioned in your acknowledgments, and, and we were talking before we started recording, of various uh, other books and people who either I've interviewed or you've talked about that uh, are interest to me, but uh, Vonda Kreft. Mm-hmm. Um, I interviewed her years quite a while ago about her book about Fox, uh, the Fox studio. It's a and great book. These early studio um, studies are so interesting for film history because it is so much of the the, the time periods. What comes out of what those time periods were like is so important. And sometimes when we talk about filmmaking and films themselves, understanding what the time periods are like are, is so important to what the studios ended up doing. Definitely. That, I think that's one of the biggest uh, advantages that film history and film historians have is that, I mean, in academia, there, there's a lot of discussion on, you know, uh, prof- you know, the, the field had its historic turn and, you know, it's kind of all been written, but those of us that are still diving around into the archives, re- you know, it doesn't take long to realize there are a lot of stories yet to tell and a lot of context that needs to be, I mean, you know, you mentioned Vanda's book, which is, which is a great book. And, uh, you know, that's one, you know, who knew we needed, you know, an 800 page book about William Fox, but you go through it and you learn so much about not just Fox, but the the early, you know, political ramifications of, of film and the struggles that exhibitors had and all of the, how he helped take down Edison and all this kind of stuff that opens the door for everything else that comes after. And that's part of what I was doing here. And I think that's, that's one of the things that is very important for film historians today. And I think the biggest, uh, uh, I guess not really a hurdle. It's just a, a responsibility maybe, um, to, to provide historical context. And because like you said, these films, as well as the studios are products of their time, you know, they are working within and responding to the era in which they're living. Right. I've talked to people about things like censorship and, and changes like that. And, and obviously, one of the things we consistently know about Hollywood is they make changes based on the time, but so that they can avoid having changes made to them. They adjust accordingly. And there's never been a, a, a countrywide uh, censorship system for films because Hollywood will change before they get around to doing that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, understanding that is important. Let's talk a little bit about going into the beginning of the book where obviously we, we, we've touched on it a little bit, but let's talk more about this pre-World War II period going back into the 30s and 40s, particularly when um, people like Lindbergh suddenly moved away from what he was known for originally as an airplane pilot into politics and other issues. Obviously, as, as you point out, the post-World War I period was definitely one where people, many people just felt like the idea of getting involved in another war was just not something they wanted to do. But this was even prior to Hitler's major appearance. There were, um, you know, he had taken power in thirty-three, and then builds up. But even during this early period, before Nazism is really on the front page, before the war actually starts in Europe, we, some of these folks are already out there talking and um, making issues related to isolationism. And one of the things, as you point out, comes out is anti-Semitism rears its ugly head pretty quickly. 
Um, who is Charles Coughlin? Because I think he's somebody that people hear the name, maybe they know it basically, but I think he's an important figure that that I people should not forget who he was. De- definitely, yeah. Charles Coughlin was a <clears throat> a radio preacher, and uh, he was Catholic. Yes, he was, he was a actually father. So I oh yeah, Father Charles, yeah, Father Coughlin. You're right. Um, and he, yeah, he had a, a pretty, you know, he he rose to prominence uh, for very different reasons uh, that he became, you know, that then he was known in later into the 30s, into the early 40s. He was eventually, you know, he he rose uh, for just being this accessible uh, orator, and uh, it was eventually booted off of radio because he he became so anti-Semitic and so hateful and so angry. And uh, it's interesting. It, it, uh, every fall I, in my pop culture class, I teach uh, A Face in the Crowd uh, and uh, Andy Griffith, uh, the great film about, you know, this this radio uh, personality goes into television and then the power kind of corrupts him. And very similar thing with with Coughlin. And, and he... Uh, all, you know, he was very much by the time the investigate we were leading up to the investigation, uh, he and people like him were, you know, it was it was perfect bait. I mean, that's why I say Jew baiting in the title, because that's what a lot of people would say in the press. Um, uh, Gerald Nye, one of the senators, one of the primary senators involved in the investigation, actually used that term as well. Uh, and that's what was, a lot, you know, the xenophobia it was really peaking by the late 30s. And uh, one of the things that is interesting about this time period, uh, and Coughlin is a great example of this, as is uh, like Huey Long down south and, and Lindbergh, of course, and a lot of the America First movement is that once uh, once Hollywood started to be a little bit more open about their anti-Nazi feelings, uh, Anybody that harbored any kind of uh, xenophobia or anti-Jewish sentiment doubled down on that as well. So uh, one of the big things was uh, in in Europe, of course, Kristallnacht happens. And you have the Nazis raiding uh, Jewish-owned businesses and homes and things like that. And all of a sudden, this stuff is out in the wide, out in the open for everybody, even those who weren't paying attention to it. And uh, of course, for long before that, uh, the Hollywood moguls and a lot of people in Hollywood that had relatives in Europe still were well aware of what was going on and what was coming. Um, this is why we had, you know, the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, which is has a very interesting history. You have um, a lot of anti-Nazi espionage going on in Los Angeles. There's been some books written about that that are wonderful. Um, uh, Hitler in Los Angeles by Steve Ross and uh, Hollywood Spies by Laura Rosenzweig uh, both detail what was going on. Um, with uh, Leon Lewis, who was a LA lawyer, and Mendel Silberberg, who was a, a lawyer for MGM, and as well as a lot of other big shots in Hollywood, uh, helped organize funding for anti-Nazi espionage. So, long before the investigation starts, uh, a lot everyone in Hollywood is is a lot of people in Hollywood anyway. I shouldn't overgeneralize, but a lot of powerful people in Hollywood were very aware of the growing domestic threat of fascism. So, by the time the investigation starts and the senators are acting like this is kind of a new thing they need to squash the a lot of the hollywood moguls have been battling this for uh many many years uh including uh one, one of the my favorite stories is uh carl lemley literally the last years of his life he was 
getting as many people as he could out of Europe and the government actually shut him down. So you, you, you finance too many people. So he's then writing letters and uh, other people in Los Angeles trying to get them to uh, get people, uh, allow, allow people into the refugees into their homes. Uh, so this is, you know, by 38, uh, when Kristallnacht happens, this is uh, in Hollywood anyway, this, the battle of against fascism uh, is, is already well underway. And so people like Coughlin and others were people who, as you point out in the book, you know, the introduction, you talk a little bit about Coughlin, about how he started as reasonably, you know, you know, he, he was very fiery and everything and people listened to him. But then as time went on, he got more and more uh, out there, anti-Semitic and, and eventually, as you point out, got pulled off the air completely because of it. But it was a definite example of how in public, normal conversation and news and other ways, these kinds of people were able to get out there and and talk a little bit, of, talk about these issues. Um, and then, of course, the other major figure from this period that, uh, and we were talking about Plot Against America, but is important, is Lindbergh. Um, we know Lindbergh, obviously, originally from his flight, solo flight to over the Atlantic, which he won a, you know medals for and everything, and it was incredibly, it was an unbelievable uh, uh, achievement. And then, of course, unfortunately, he went through the issue with uh, with he and his wife's child being kidnapped and killed, which got him continued his uh, being well known among the public. Right. But one of the things that isn't always known or doesn't usually get discussed when we talk about Lindbergh is his isolationism and his desire to keep the United States not only out of the war, but also the belief that what's going on in Germany is a good thing and something that uh, deserves praise even, as opposed to obviously many people who believe that uh, the United States would eventually get involved. Where does Lindbergh start in this whole process of the uh, America First uh, movement? Yeah, that, that that's a, a really important thing to bring up, and that's why I I start the book talking about really two major figures that are really polar opposite by the 1930s, which is Lindbergh, of course, and Alvin York, uh, which I've already made the great right. Warner who, Brothers film of Sergeant, Sergeant York. York. Right. When yep. you hear of Sergeant York, that's who we're talking about. Right, and he he you know was a staunch anti-war. Right, he he did not he you know until the Warner Brothers fell, he didn't want to profit. He didn't want anybody using his story for entertainment and, and this kind of thing. But by the late 1930s, mid late 1930s, he uh, changed his tune. And it's not necessarily that he became pro-war. But that's one of the things that's probably important to point out is that there was the um, you know in the book I'm careful not to say like pro-war, anti-war. It's more like the isolationism and the interventionism. And part of the interventionist mindset was not necessarily to jump into another war because like you said you know a lot of people were still miffed about world war one they didn't want to get pulled into another war and one of the big uh, you know one of the big pieces of legislation that was very controversial was fdr's lend-lease bill that he signed and what this did is it effectively sent everything except for troops over to britain to help them defend themselves from the nazis so 
uh, even even into the investigation. I mean, even at one point, they asked, you know, the the senators asked Harry Warner, you know, do you want us to go to war? And he says no. And this is in you know September of forty one. He says we just need to help them, however we can. So that's kind of where York was, that we should help, but maybe not get into war. But then you have Lindbergh, uh, along with the America First movement, who is very much uh, isolationist. Yeah, and when you which on, on its head, you're on its, on its head on its surface sounds, I mean, kind of understandable post-World War One. you don't want to get drawn into another conflict. You don't want to have that, that kind of havoc wreaked on the economy and all this kind of stuff. But when you go past that and you start looking at their speeches and you listen to the rhetoric, you start to notice different motives. Um, and a lot has been written in recent years about the America First movement uh, being co-opted by pro-Nazi organizations and being friendly with the German-American Bund and the Silver Shirts and these kinds of groups. And when you look at the speeches uh, from Lindbergh, um, when you get into 40 and 41, uh, and as well as other people, part of the America First movement, it gets very xenophobic. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, we are for Americans only, uh, or, you know, it, you know, they go, they almost say, you know, 100% American, which has, you know, lots of strings attached. And Lindbergh had actually, where a lot of the anti-Semitism proof comes from, um, and I've seen books on Lindbergh where authors are desperately trying to say he wasn't anti-Semitic, uh, but he, he said in a speech that the biggest, effectively the biggest threat to the United States is the Jewish controlled media, hmm. uh, movies and media. So at that point, the cat was kind of out of the bag. So basically, he was he, he, he thought the media was bigger threat than than the banks and the finances, like a lot of uh, yeah. anti-Semites tend to push. Right. I mean, and of course, with a lot of the, the talk through the American First Movement, they, they mentioned that. But once you get, I think probably after 1939, once Hollywood starts making anti-Nazi movies, then that's when they really start to go after Hollywood because it's, it's much higher profile, of course. And, um, you know, and there were some issues there where, I mean, you mentioned censorship early earlier, and, and there were strictures in the production code that talked about not ridiculing other countries and religions and things like that. So uh, that's why the studios for a long time were very careful not to say Nazi or Germany or Jewish uh, in movies, you know, we have, you know, movies like Black Legion and They Won't Forget that are very careful to to veil this kind of stuff very cleverly. But by 39, of course, and Confessions of a Nazi Spy, uh, then that's kind of the watershed moment. And other people have written about that, that as soon as Warner Brothers goes all in with that film, then other studios do as well. And of course, we mentioned Plot Against America at the beginning. Um, famously in both the book and the movie, Charles Lindbergh becomes president of the United States and that's, mm -hmm. uh, where that starts off. And, and it's that aspect where the, um, the concept of being America first and anti-war, anti-war with, with, with the Germans becomes the linchpin of, of that storyline. And it all comes from these kind of situations. So what kind of, uh, you, you mentioned this, that uh, Hollywood begins to do anti-Nazi films in, in the late thirties. Uh, Confessions of a Nazi spy is the one you mentioned. Um, was there some decision? I mean, in reading about the background of these films, uh, obviously they were being made, purposely to point out 
the anti-Nazi aspect of them, but what made the decision that they were going to start making these kind of films? Uh, well, I think the biggest thing, like I said, a lot of the studios had to be careful uh, to avoid uh, censorship issues and, and pushback. But I think the, the biggest thing, what made it easy for Warner Brothers, for sure, for Confessions of Nazi Spies, that they are at that point for decades, just about, yeah, oh, yeah since 1918, had been ripping from the headlines. They had been making movies based on news. And uh, Confession of a Nazi Spy is based on the, the very real news story of, of Leon Thoreau uh, outing this uh, spy ring. Um, I believe it was in New York. Uh, um, but, but anyway, you know, and, and then the trial of these, of, you know, the espionage trial and all this kind of stuff. So it was all in the news. It was all out there and it was for the taking. So they weren't just, you know, nobody could really argue that, oh, this is some kind of conspiratorial, you're making them out, you know, making this look bigger, like a bigger deal than it is. This was, no, this was a real thing. And, and Leon Thoreau actually was told, you know, not to to spill the beans to the press on a lot of this. And he, he said, people need to know what's going on. And he did anyway. And uh, so that was, that's actually one of the things that comes up in Harry Warner's defense is that, Hey, this was news and we were just making movies about news. So that was a really easy way to do it and, and get that first one out of the way. Uh, but then of course, after that, when actually really a lot of the other movies after that are still based on books. Another, another movie that comes up, uh, a few, quite a few times in the investigation is the mortal storm of uh, Frank Borzaghi, uh film, and that's another one that was based that was based on a book, and that's one of the things that uh, even before the investigation starts, the Hollywood's counsel was Wendell Wilkie, um, who was a presidential candidate uh, in 1940, and he was he was a, he very much of an activist mindset, and he jumped at, at the opportunity to defend Hollywood, and he said to the press. You need to, st- you know, if you're going to investigate the movies, maybe also start investigating the books and publishers and authors that these movies are based on, because it's not just the movies. And of course, one of the other films that came out of this, that one of these that that you mentioned, and I think uh, probably is even more well known than some of the other ones you mentioned, is Chaplin's The Great Dictator, mm-hmm. which. At the time, this was already post, the war had already started in, in Europe, and of course, Charles Chaplin being British, I'm sure that did not necessarily um, make him any less of a target for these kind of complaints about... Right, yeah, and that's, that movie comes up a lot in this as well, but it's interesting how it does, because they mention Chaplin, they mention The Great Dictator, uh, and they, they always mention how Chaplin was... Uh, you know, a great artist. And they'll, they'll, you know, because they obviously knew he was probably one of the most popular celebrities on the planet. Um, but then they would kind of backtrack that and they would talk about, yeah, he's a great artist, but he's not, he's not American, right? No, no, he wasn't born here. So they, in, during the investigation, they, they always make references like that to somebody. And then they're always quick to point out, but he's not effectively what they're saying. He's not one of us though, right? Um, you know, he's not a hundred percent American. He's from elsewhere. Um, but even some of the, one of, one of the people who did testify, uh, early on was, was, um, uh, Jimmy Fiddler, who was a syndicated columnist and radio critic, uh, very much a, a thorn in the side of Hollywood. Um, I didn't know much about him before diving into this, uh, book, but I got the clear sense that nobody in Hollywood liked this guy. And actually during his testimony, he, he points out the great dictator and 
he says it's a film that should never have been made. He was he completely hated it. But a lot of the other people who talk about it, even the, the senators who bring it up, tend to to see why it's appreciated, but they then still quickly finger it as propaganda and that it's still you know, dangerous. Of course, propaganda tends to be whatever it's called that when it's something you don't agree with, it becomes propaganda. Um, right. And that's pointed out in the investigation too. Um, another another person who was 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 subpoenaed was John Flynn. And uh, in the beginning, he talks about, you know, not really having an issue with propaganda because he's written some of it himself. So they kind of they get him on that right away. Uh, they're like, well, you so you just don't like propaganda that you disagree with. Right. Um, <laughs> so as we now, we, we you know, that's basically the the lines have been drawn at this point. And while the anti-Semitism is there, it's not automatically the biggest part of some of these early aspects, even though some of the folks involved were clearly anti-Semitic. But who, what are the groups that begin to actually start to push back against what Hollywood's doing and leads, eventually leads to this Senate investigation? Yeah, so um, the way that I, you know, trying to piece this all together for the book, I saw a couple different things. So, um, there's Senator Gerald Nye um, from South Dakota, who was a part of the America First movement, increasingly anti-Hollywood um, in his speeches. He was close with a guy named John Flynn, who I just mentioned, who was a journalist. He had written for Collier's in the New, New, uh, New Republic. Uh, he was very much a Washington insider. He was also chairman of the New York uh, America First Committee. And uh, these two really schemed to get financing secured for the investigation. And uh, one of the other things that happened in, in this like summer leading up to the investigation while they're trying to uh, justify looking into Hollywood, uh, there are two uh, very important events that happen at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles. So um, in on, uh, it was in, let's see, what it was, June 20th, uh, there was an America First rally at the Hollywood Bowl. And Lindbergh was there, and um, Senator uh, DeWorth Clark was there speaking, and it was a packed house, uh, but it wasn't really a star-studded event. Uh, but it was a packed house, and it showed in Hollywood that, look, there is a lot of isolationist support still here in Los Angeles around you. Um, but uh, a little over a month later in July, there was an interventionist rally, and this was a star-studded event. And all of Hollywood came out for it. It was also a packed house. It was interesting, though, how it how um, the isolationists would sell the event in the press. They would say, "Oh, well, we had our rally and it packed. You know, it was it was a sellout." And then they had their rally and nobody came. Although well, it sounds interesting, sounds right. somewhat familiar. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. That's not relevant today. Um, but in 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 truth, the the isolationist rally did sell out and the interventionist rally did not, but it almost sold out. So it was still very similar, <laughs> similar uh, attendance. Um, and again, this was happening right, right in Hollywood, right in Los Angeles uh, in the summer before this investigation. And, and uh, it really, I think, uh, irked Hollywood, uh, the studios um, having this kind of, kind of rally right in their backyard. Uh, and then 
of course, you have uh, the Amer you know, of all the American first rallies, there's there's lots of talk of, uh, or at least in a lot of them, uh, Hollywood, you know, issues with Hollywood and the movies that they were making. Obviously, as you point, as you say in the book, it's a combination of journalists and senators. Um, who actually starts it? Is, is the journalists first? I mean, are, are they the ones that begin to push about it? Some yeah, journalists? It's, so it's, when does it's, Cong when are the when do the senators start to get involved? So, so it's a it's a really weird it's a it's a really weird organization. So uh, Gerald Nye uh, and John Flynn are kind of scheming to get this uh, the 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 funding secured for this and trying to convince uh, other people in the Senate to look at Hollywood. And uh, it's interesting because even during the investigation, uh, Gerald Nye never mentions, he always talks about the Hollywood insiders that he knows and, and that he's going to use, but he never mentions who they were. He just assures everybody that they're trustworthy. But where they end up putting this investigation, and it's weird because it's technically not an investigation. It's an, it's, it's an inquiry to see if there should be an investigation. So there's really weird language um, and it ends up getting proposed to uh, the Interstate Commerce Committee, um, who, which was run by Burton Wheeler uh, out of Montana, who's a senator from, from Montana. And so this was a subcommittee of the Interstate Commerce Committee. And one of the reasons it got into there is that uh, in addition to the propaganda, they, uh, they added an amendment where this will also look at Hollywood and potential monopolistic practices. Of course, you know, by 1948, they actually get in trouble for that, but uh, it's already being proposed and looked at. So it, it gets into the Interstate Commerce Committee, and then Wheeler has um, Senator DeWorth Clark of Idaho put together a subcommittee. And he puts together a group, a very interesting group. It's, it's a bipartisan group. You got Democrats and Republicans in there. So you have you have Wheeler, uh, who was a Democrat. You have Clark, who had, Worth Clark. There's two Clarks, so that was kind of tricky. There's Worth Clark, who's a Democrat from Idaho. Then you have Gerald Nye, who I mentioned, who's a Republican from North Dakota. And, and interestingly, his background is actually in journalism as well. So you almost wonder if before he got into politics, if he got a, a taste of the yellow journalist kind of thing. Um, then we have Bennett Champ Clark, who's a Democrat from Missouri. Charles Toby, Republican from New Hampshire. Um, Wyland Brooks, uh, who's a Republican from Illinois, Ernest McFarland, Democrat from Arizona, and then there was somebody else that was supposed to be on the subcommittee, Homer T. Bone, who was a Democrat from Washington, but he got sick and he wasn't able to attend. Um, but what's interesting is that th what they thought they were putting together was this group of isolationists. And they threw you know, probably the, the worst thing that they could have done and they would never have seen it coming is they put Ernest McFarland on this uh, committee and he ultimately becomes the hero of this whole thing in, in a sense because he is a junior senator at the time. Um, he hasn't been overly vocal about a lot in the Senate anyway. He was, very, uh, was a lawyer in Arizona and very well known in Arizona already, would later then become governor of Arizona, I think more than once. Um, but he is the one who would ask all the questions that would really unravel this entire thing. He would he came in very honestly um, and and asked asked questions that should have been easy to answer uh, throughout the the, the inquiry, um, but they couldn't do it and ended up becoming this this wild card that they did not expect. 
Um, and you know, the, the lawyer in him ended up asking all the right questions, which is interesting because what the, what the, uh, committee did subcommittee rather, is that I mentioned before how Wendell Wilkie was, was Hollywood's counsel. They actually gagged him. They actually said, you cannot, uh, cross-examine anybody we bring in here. Um, you can be here, you can object, um, so what he ended up doing, which was maybe even better, was that he, you know, since he couldn't speak during the, the uh, actual examinations and uh, testimonies, is he would he would give full long interviews to the press every day, so that the whole country could get his side. Uh, yeah, one of the things uh, that's worth mentioning, and you you you've talked about it, is that congressional committees are not the same as courts of law. They right. can pretty much set their own rules. Uh, if they don't want somebody to speak, they can say they can't speak. I mean, theoretically, only the senators but and staff. And, and so somebody like a Wilkie or, or someone else who might be uh, object to the issues really doesn't have the opportunity to say anything. And if they, if they even if they wanted to testify before the committee, they it's up to the committee to decide whether they're going to allow it or not. Right. And— of course, you mentioned that briefly, I want to just add a little context that the monopoly issue, because that yeah. became at least part of the justification for all this. And of, uh, of course, the monopoly issue is that uh, the studios were getting into trouble because they also owned the theaters that were right. showing their films. And that that became a, a major issue almost immediately with Hollywood. And of course, as you pointed out, until it finally until they finally were had to divest themselves, it was always a big thing that got brought up when um, people talked about Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting because there are certain there are entire days of this investigation that get lost into the monopoly discussion, and and that's one of the things that frustrates Ernest McFarland because he's like, so where's the propaganda? I'm not seeing it. Um, but one of the people they actually subpoena is Nicholas Skank. So he's president of Lowe's, um, who you know. Owns MGM, and they're they're trying to throw numbers at him about, um, and, and they do this with other people as well uh, about the, you know owning the theaters and all this kind of stuff. And they don't. MGM has has not a lot of theaters. It's Paramount that has the huge number of theaters, uh, and he does a really good job of actually showing how. Because one of the big arguments with the monopoly is that you're not creating competition. And um, he's like, there's there's plenty of competition because most of us don't own a lot of theaters. It's actually just some of us that have a lot of theaters, and the, you know, even the the the, uh, the the studios that didn't have a ton of theaters, they they just had a very different way of marketing their movies. That they they didn't see it necessarily as a problem that Paramount had so many and some of the other ones had less. Uh, but he actually gave some really good examples about um, how. Uh, the the studios still also work together, and and um, you know they don't because there was talks of how you know the studios had every you know every had such control over their talent as well, which they did. But he made a really good example of studios lending out. Um, you know, if there's somebody that they have under their contract, and they and another studio came in with an offer that would benefit. Uh, that studio, but it would also help the star power of whoever they have under contract. They would work together on allowing a studio to have, I think he used Clark Gable as an example, getting a loaned out for uh, It Happened One Night. 
And they knew that was, was a great say, project. Cable was all over the place. So that's... Right, exactly. So they used that as an example. Like, hey, this is going to be a great film. It's going to be great for that studio. But it's also going to be great for the studio that has his primary contract. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, they're helping each other out and competing at the same time because you're loaning him out to a competing studio that's going to help them. But you also see that it's going to help, you know, whoever owns his contract in the long run. Um, but that entire day, uh, they actually brought, they had they used Skank for an entire day, and then they brought him back the next day. And that was one of the days where it was really clear how little that the senators knew about how Hollywood operated. It was basically a Q and A session, um, and tr- you know they talked very little about propaganda. <clears throat> and uh, it it you know by then it was already starting to unravel. But I mean that was a day that particularly in the press that it was it was very clear that the senators were over their head. So we talk about this as being an investigation. Was there much more than the actual hearings going on or was were, I mean obviously hearings tend to be the, 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 the middle, you know, the, the most obvious, well known part of any kind of investigation, but um was there a real investigation going on or was this more of a matter of we wanted these hearings so we could be out in the public with this? It, it was very much that. It was very much hearings to be out in the public. There really wasn't anything beyond this going on because really, I mean, the the other thing that was, was happening that was supposed to be <clears throat> controlling movies was, was, you know, the censorship body in Hollywood. So that was, that was already in place. So they didn't need to. And that's one of the things that's interesting. They didn't bring in Will Hayes. They didn't bring in Joseph Breen, uh, who, who they really should have. Um, it probably could have. I mean, there's a lot of people that they they talked about bringing in and never did. Uh, we mentioned Chaplin earlier. They, you know, they talked. They they had actually said in the press, "We're bringing in Chaplin," um, and I so wish they did because that there would have been so much fireworks if they would have went up against Chaplin. Um, but they also talked about bringing in Billy Wilkerson, who uh, was running the Hollywood Reporter, and he he is somebody who really hated the studios. So that also would have been interesting. Um, but it really wasn't, it didn't really get that deep. It was really just, in, in a sense, a show trial, um, not even a real trial, but to, to, to take the title from Tom Doherty's last book. Uh, but it was, it was for show. And that comes out, you know, the, it comes out when Bennett Champ Clark uh, testifies. It's, he makes it very clear that he, that, Radio and movies should not be able to reach a larger audience than elected officials. He thought that was unfair. He said, they don't speak for the people. We speak for the people. So at that point, it was very clear that you, you could just sense the jealousy that he just, he didn't feel, they, they, were, they were annoyed that they weren't featured on newsreels as much. And they didn't get the attention that the stars did and the studios did and the movies did. So they felt that they were being um, overrun by uh, people who did not deserve to have the platform that they had. Once again, we see this not just with Hollywood nowadays, but also with uh, with people like um, um, sports figures now who are basically mm-hmm. being told to stick to sports or stick to, you know, anytime someone talks about something that's considered political or controversial, they're being told to stick to your own lane and stay away from this. And yet, so once again, it's another example of where things have not changed. So how long did the actual hearings last? Not very long. They started on September 9th. And then 
only, I mean, they would, they would go a few days at a time. They, they, the last day was September 26th. Um, and it was really unraveling quickly by then. Uh, and they, what's interesting is that, so they, they did one recess in here after, uh, September 15th and then they come back and then at the end of the month, they take another recess. And the intention was to, uh, come back. Uh, and and continue hearing. And this is maybe when they thought they were going to bring in Chaplin and Wilkerson and Hayes. Uh, but what's interesting, one of the big reasons for the recess was, so going back to the first day, so when Gerald Nye starts testifying and talking about how dangerous these movies are and making his wild claims about uh, the mortal storm being co-opted by British propagandists and all this kind of stuff, uh, and... And talking about how, I mean, leading up to that day in the press, he had talked about these movies are making America punch, punch drunk with propaganda and they're going to push her into war and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I mentioned Ernest McFarlane earlier. He very honestly asked Nye, he's like, look, I'm not a, I'm not a movie guy. So, you know, we go to the movies a couple times a year. I don't, I don't know a lot about them. Can you explain to me a little bit more about what, what makes these movies so dangerous? What makes them propagandistic? And he couldn't answer. And he starts pressing him. He's like, all right, well, let, what about the, you, you mentioned this movie. What about this one? What about this one? What about this one? And he's like, ah, I don't know if I've seen it. I don't know if I've seen it. So it didn't take really long before we realized that he hasn't seen any of them. And so th this sets McFarlane on fire. He, he can't believe that they would even put together an investigation or an or a inquiry without even watching the movies. Um, but this is where Nye would come back and say, well, I, but I, I've heard about how bad they are from trusted people. Just trust me. Um, so one of the reasons for the recess going back to the end of September is <laughs> McFarland keeps saying, can we watch these movies? Can we actually look and see if this is even worth being talked about? Um, so there's all this promise of watching the movies. Uh, and of course that never happens. And, um, you know, of course Pearl Harbor happens. And, and even after, you know, even right before Pearl Harbor and right after, um, the, the senators are planning on bringing this back together, but it is until um, later in the month, about a week or a week and a half after Pearl Harbor, that they finally formally close the investigation. But uh, it's, yeah, it's wild. <laughs> <laughs> so... Obviously, as we were, as I mentioned earlier, because of when it took place, you could see how things would be different after Pearl Harbor, and and continuing something like this would be pretty much a waste of time. Um, we talk about the anti-Semitism as far as the America First movement and the and the isolationist movement. Are there aspects during the during the hearings where anti-Semitism reared its ugly head? It's what it what it's mostly in the form of is talking about, you know, they usually don't, you know, they're not, it's not as outward as we might think, but it was pretty outward for the time in the sense that they're talking about, um, you know, the, you know, talking about all of the, the filmmakers and the studio bosses as immigrants who brought their problems over here, they should deal with them, go back home, you know, so it's really the xenophobia, but it, it, ha it so happens that all of the people they point out and, and a lot of the, the people they mention in Hollywood as problematic are Jewish. So that's something that, be, that, that something becomes so clear that when Daryl Zanuck is brought in, 
he assures the committee that they have nothing to worry about because he was born in the United States, uh, which, of course, creates a bunch of laughter uh, because by this point, the, it's, it's pretty clear that um, everybody, uh, to, to everybody following, that this, this has this, this very, very shallow underneath the surface uh, thread of anti-Semitism um, so much too that when you when you look at the reporting, uh, a lot of the oh there's the dogs. That's okay. <laughs> it's fine. So much so when when you look at a lot of the reporting, they talk about they talk about how um, when certain people were mentioned uh, that they could hear the senators or maybe the supporters of the investigation in the crowd always mentioning oh that person's Jewish that person's Jewish. So there was a lot of of nodding to that, uh, that, uh, and then of course the, the studio, like I said, the studios they went after, I mean, the, the, it, it's really no surprise that they brought in Harry Warner, but that was another really big mistake. I mean, Harry Warner out of all of the studio moguls was probably the most proud of his heritage of being Jewish and the last person to ever, uh, hide it. And he actually, the, the, really the biggest nail in the coffin of this entire investigation is when Harry Warner comes up, not only does he give a lengthy statement where he is not to be interrupted about how his family came to the United States and everything that they went through to create their studios, but once he starts talking about uh, the anti-Nazi movies, he reads a wire that was sent from Gerald Nye to the studio after watching Confessions of a Nazi Spy in 39 and talking about how amazing he thought the film was and all this kind of stuff and... Uh, it really, uh, it was fun reading the press coverage there because uh, it says that, you know, Nye, his face just turned red and it's it's now, you know, this guy that has been the most uh, animated and, and the most vocally anti-Hollywood and anti-propaganda uh, movies had actually told Warner Brothers how awesome Confessions of a Nazi Spy was. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, what kind of coverage did these hearings get in the in the mainstream press? Well, and that that's a great question because that's one of the reasons I decided to write the book was that I realized that this was really anybody following the news in in, in September of 1941 knew that this was going on. Um, so much so that during the during the first recess, they actually had asked uh, FDR about it, and he laughed, kind of laughed the investigation off, like not even taking it seriously. But a lot of the it was covered in a lot of the major newspapers. It wasn't just the Hollywood trade press, but even the trade press coverage was syndicated across tons of newspapers around the whole country, um, big and small. Um, and um, that actually reminds me, I mean, going back to uh, the anti-Semitism angle, there was one other big thing that I found. So one of the one of the research, uh, one of the places I researched was the National Archives, the Senate Archives in D.C. And. Um, I had found uh, when I went out there, uh, the archivist, or before I went out there, the archivist said, yeah, we have like a thousand pages on this. Um, the bad news is it's all unorganized, but the good news is that means nobody has looked at this since 1941. And one of the things I found were a lot of the letters of support to the senators. Uh, and almost all of these letters were anti-Semitic. They were all like, thank you for finally going after the Jews in Hollywood. And that it was that kind of thing where it was that's when it became really clear that the you know the people that really you know the real intentions here uh, were seen by a lot of people and there was whole fold and the fact that the senators kept those letters 
uh, and didn't just toss them is also kind of telling. Um, and there's a, I talk about some of the, some of the letters in the book, but there's a lot of pretty ugly stuff that came through in that mail. So was the news coverage? Did they were were some newspapers covering it as a pro or against? I mean, I know back, especially people don't always know this, but newspapers definitely had slants. Yep. And um, were there groups of uh, reporters? Obviously, we talked about the reporters being some of the catalyst for this, but uh, were pro and anti uh, investigation reporters in force here? Yeah, it, almost the entire coverage was against the investigation. Um, and that's not just the Hollywood press, uh, but of course, you know, all the Hollywood press was against except for Jimmy Fiddler. Um, but it's it's interesting because the the ones that were for the investigation were really obvious. So, for example, we mentioned uh, Father Coughlin earlier, and he he had a publication called Social Justice, right. and that publication was very much for the investigation and very much against Hollywood. Really, no surprise there. So, it, it was those kinds of publications that that were pretty obvious. Um, there was some of the, if I remember correctly, some of the Hearst Press. Um, one of the San Francisco papers had an issue, but that was more of an issue with one of the critics. Uh, but for the most part, it was people saw the investigation as silly. And a big part of that is because Hollywood, you know, the movies that they're talking about, and um, John Flynn is the only one who really creates a list of these movies that I, I've published in the book. It's not a lot of movies and, you know, a handful or so from each studio, some international films, and it's a tiny percentage of the output of, of any studio on any given year. So it was really easy to see this as not a big deal. And also not all these movies did well. Some of them did, um, but not all of them. They weren't all unanimously box office smashes either. So it seemed a really weird thing to worry about. And a lot of people in the press saw that. And one of the things that the film daily did is they sent out a poll to, I think, uh, a bunch of critics. I know they got, I was just looking at the numbers yesterday. They, they got, a, anyway, they got 113 responses back. And all of the critics from all over the country were 100% against the investigation. And they did not see these movies as dangerous. So that was something that was a pretty big deal as well, because that wasn't just the Hollywood press. That were, that, you know, those were journalists and critics from all over the country that could very easily see that this was this was a really useless investigation. And unfortunately, this would not be, wasn't the first time and wouldn't be the last time that nope. uh, that uh, Congress and congressional investigations would go against Hollywood. Of course, the next time, major time, is for, once again, propaganda films, but in this case, it would be the ones that were pro-Russia or mm -hmm. pro-Soviet Union during World War II. Those become topics for... Um, for hearings, and then, of course, as we get into the 40s and 50s and things get worse and worse and worse. So it's clear that uh, Senate and other groups, political groups, have figured out that the way to get good, to get press, whether it's good or bad, mm -hmm. is to investigate Hollywood. Yeah, and there's a long trend of this. Like you said, it wasn't the first, it wasn't the last. Uh, there's a, One of the things I, I mentioned in my conclusion is that there's a a long history really from the beginning of Hollywood and, and really to today throughout all of popular culture for either politicians or 
certain um, lobbyist groups and special interest groups to deem certain pieces of popular culture as dangerous. And sometimes throughout history, this leads to investigations and uh, hearings. And uh, it happened with comic books in the 1950s. And it happened with movies again in the 1950s. Um, You know, music in the 80s, video games in the 90s. I mean, we see this, you know, this is this is, uh, you know, an interesting piece of, you know, this book is an interesting piece, slice of history, but is one piece of a much larger trend of really a fear of popular culture. Right. Especially when it becomes nationwide, like with, uh, as you say, like with radio and then eventually like even newspapers were local, even though they might pick up stories from state area mm-hmm. to area, they still were essentially local. And yet things like radio and then movies and then television and then the Internet and so on and so forth suddenly gets out of locality and in mass media, the real, the real concept of mass media really comes into effect. Right. So, obviously, uh, this book, your main clear, obviously, you're, tr- you're, you're showing that, number one, the issues related to anti-Semitism in Hollywood were already deeply ingrained, even by this point, um, at Hollywood, not in Hollywood. And then also uh, the issues related to... Um, Congress and other organizations feeling the need to somehow control or have some control over what Hollywood does. What would you consider to be the the most important outcome of these hearings and, and what you feel uh, they, they showed the most? Um, one of the things that I think I, I had in my mind kind of building the whole time I was reading through the congressional record was the similarities between the the people that were pushing hardest against these movies seemed to know the least about them. And I think that is a thread that we've seen, you know, in this country for a hundred years uh, with popular culture. And it's one of the things I mentioned in my conclusion that the, these types of this, this type of pushback against popular culture is so common and it catches, you know, especially now in the social media era, you know, it catches uh, and, and moves so quickly um, that makes it uh, even more important to to really take a lot of it with a grain of salt. And, you know, it's important to always understand uh, the context around what you're looking at, what you're watching, the history of it, the interpretations of it, um, and, and do the research yourself. Uh, make sure you look into it. You know, if there's a movie um, that's getting a lot of negative press, maybe take a look at it. Um, you know, don't, don't be the, the Gerald Nye, um, and, and going after, uh, you know, a certain movie and just hearing how bad it was, you know, go watch it. Um, and, and the historical context as well, right. I mean, there's a lot of talk recently over about, uh, gone with the wind. Uh, but, uh, but also going back to something like birth of a nation, you know, these movies are of course very racist, but also very important for other reasons, artistic, um, but these movies were also protested when they came out. They were, they were, there was pushback. Uh, you know, the contemporaries of this era, of these eras, pushed back against these movies as well. Um, you know, it's not a new thing. So, I think it's always important to uh, learn the context and understand the time period, um, and and learn that some things have changed since certain movies have come out, and some things have not. 
And I think one of the things that has not, that I think we need to work on uh, as a culture is, is informing the people like Gerald Nye um, that, you know, there's, there's a, uh, you know, one movie isn't going to, uh, you know, undo the fabric of society, uh, especially if it wasn't a totally popular one. Yeah. And speaking of birth of the nation, I just had an interview not that long ago with Greg Garrett about his book, A Long, Long Way, Hollywood's Unfinished Journey from Racism to Reconciliation. And we start with Birth of a Nation, and uh, he doesn't talk much about Gone with the Wind in that book, but it's still a concept that these films and other popular works deserve to at least be reviewed and looked at so that we learn from them as opposed to just saying, you know, how bad they are, we need to understand better why they're so bad and, and what we can learn from them. Definitely. So you said you were working on another book. Um, I think you said back to Warner Brothers again, but uh, yes. Uh, what's your, I mean, I don't want to have you t- spoil secrets, but w- w- where are we with, with future work? Um, it, it's, I've not really, I haven't talked about it a lot, but it's not really an overt secret either. Um, I, I am working on a, what, I, actually what I was planning on was a follow-up to uh, the, uh, my first book about Warner Brothers, which was much more focused on the films and how they interacted with society uh, in the earlier years, uh, basically the Depression up to World War II. Um, what I ended up doing as I was doing a follow-up to that and you know deviated to the Hollywood Hates Hitler book, and now what I ended up doing was, uh, is, is um, is going to be a biography uh, of the Warner Brothers. So, you know, we've had some books about the Warner Brothers in the 70s and 80s that were much more uh, kind of not deeply researched. We have uh, the family biography, um, but we don't have, uh, particularly with a lot of uh, new archival uh, access, uh, there is a lot of stuff uh, about the family and um, about their journey that really hasn't been talked about. So I'm writing a, a biography of the Warner Brothers. Still not sure what the title will be yet, but um, planning on ha- uh, um, having that out uh, in 2023, which will be the centennial of the studio. Yeah, um, that's one of the things I talk about regularly with uh, with with authors about their various books is how now we have we're in a golden age of archives. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that even some, so many of them are even digitized where you can do a great deal of research without having to go anyplace, uh, but you also still have to get out there and look at the right material, but it's just great how archives are making the works of yours and other similar authors possible because you can get to these things, it's particularly when we're talking about older periods of time where things like interviews are just not something you can do. Definitely, yeah. There's a lot of... Um, old Hollywood trade press that has been digitized, like you said, and um, you know there's still a lot in the archives that that needs to be um, written about. But uh, I think that, like you said, the the digitization has made it really easy. And a lot of archives might have stuff digitized that you don't know. And you know, I've I've reached out to archives and they've sent me stuff. Um, and it's it's uh, I think the internet age has made. You know, I'm really glad that I kind of came of age in my career and, and became a professor as this stuff was all coming to be because it makes it, the, the, the research community is so much more connected now than I think it once was. And it, it makes this not necessarily easy, but things that you can do, you know, you, you don't necessarily need to get like university approval and travel and all this kind of stuff to go somewhere and do, you can, you can always be working on your research and, 
there, yeah, there is a lot of, of interviews and stories and things like that that are haven't been written about yet um, that that add interesting context. Um, I mean, I just got done written, writing about like the late teen, you know, leading up to incorporation of Warner Brothers. And there, there's so much stuff in, in the old trade press and in and, and photos of their old offices and things like that that I have never seen anywhere. Um, so it's really exciting. Well, there's one of the positives of social media, too. It means you can reach out to somebody on the other side of the world who might have like interest or might have information, and you can throw ideas off the wall and things like that together without having to worry about having to be on the telephone or letters. Oh, my exactly. God, letters. Having to write letters. <laughs> Actual handwriting. So. Well, I really appreciate your time. Hollywood hates, excuse me, Hollywood hates Hitler. Um, the book is a great look at another period of time where Congress and other organizations decide to go after Hollywood. Um, the book is great, and I hope people reach out and, and, and review it carefully and, and read and learn the lessons from it. Definitely. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Joel. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Chris for his great discussion of his book and his research. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.